This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media podcast about all things in print. We've reached the third course of Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter here at Books and Nachos. My name is Stuart in L.A., and I've been reading all of the Thomas Harris works that feature our famous, iconic villain. Or is he a hero? I, I haven't decided yet. He's the star now, I can tell you that. In the third book, our supporting player that served mostly as mentor for investigators investigating other serial killers. Now, it's named after him. There can be no mistake that this novel, this third chapter, is all about Hannibal, right? From the title, it announces he is front and center now. It's all about finding him. And it took a while to get this one out. It was published in 1999, which is 11 years after the novel of Silence of the Lambs was published. And it was eight years after the movie came out. And they've got to deal with something here because continuity between the book and the movie hasn't been entirely fluid. So I'm wondering as I'm picking up the novel is how is Harris going to deal with the things that weren't in that iconic movie? Because I feel like what's really dogging the picture now is the high expectations of getting not just Clarice and Hannibal back together, but getting Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins back together in a movie. How much is that going to color what Thomas Harris is going to write? Because if you'll remember, at the end of Silence of the Lambs, Lecter is getting cosmetic surgery. He is not going to look the same as he has in the past. And he even goes to South America, we'll learn, and has his sixth finger removed. If you recall, that was his little telltale sign to let you know that there was something abnormal about him. I mean, it gives away his identity, and so he must have it removed in order to remain on the lamb and incognito. Harris gives very few details about how Hannibal looks now. We know he's living in Florence. He's essentially living in the Belvedere, the very place that he drew in Silence of the Lambs, with the look of the Duomo, you know, the view that he showed to Clarice to give her a clue. Well, now he's actually there. So I'm wondering, how much in hiding is he really? I mean, why wouldn't investigators go to seek him out in this neighborhood? It doesn't make for the most incognito hideout to hide in the place that you've vividly drawn in your jail cell. His physical look, well, you know, he's still small and sleek, small teeth, very white. There's the scar on his hand from the removal of the second middle finger on his left hand. And he wears beautifully cut dark clothing. That's pretty much all the description we get of Hannibal now. He operates under the name Dr. Fell, and he is curating a art library in the Capone Library in Florence. He's trying to go for the position, and we know that he's still up to his old cannibal habits, or at least he's killed, because the man that formerly had this job is now gone, but under mysterious circumstances that are being investigated. But for the most part, I've got to say, there's not a whole lot of evidence here that in the past seven years, Hannibal has been doing too much criminal. I don't see 
what the big deal was. <laughs> Why couldn't they let the guy out if all he wanted to do was eat fine dining and enjoy culture and art and visit uh, Europe? I, I feel like this is strange the, to see a character that we felt like a snake coiled to strike. And when he actually gets freedom, it actually looks, I don't know, rather conventional. It's almost a disappointment to find out that Hannibal's gone legit. He's a librarian. <laughs> The novel Hannibal is broken up into six different segments, and far and away the strongest for me to read was the second, the one about Florence, and really the one about outing Dr. Fell's identity as Hannibal Lecter. I feel like this in and of itself could have been an entire novel. As it is, it's only 100 pages of a novel that's actually... 484 pages. So it's basically a fifth of the story, but it could have been its own standalone 300 page, just like the other novels story. I believe it has the strongest arc and the original dynamic that I've grown to love and see as the formula that Thomas Harris uses, that there is Lecter as a mentor, that there is an investigator, and that there is an on-the-loose serial killer. The investigator is Ronaldo Pazzi, and I find him to be a fascinating police inspector because he has a family lineage that ties all the way back through Florence to a scandal that his ancestors participated in an assassination plot that failed and has made his name mud for centuries. And now he is, in some ways, trying to redeem his name. And as a cop, he came close to doing so because in Florence... There has been a serial killer on the loose for well over a decade. And this is a actual case here. I, I think it's worth noting that Thomas Harris did his research and there is actually a monster of Florence serial killer that targets lovers in quiet places, you know, lovers lanes kind of places and executes them. And Potsy actually brought a man to justice. Um, he was celebrated for it, actually got to go to Washington, D.C. and train uh, with the FBI and was beloved and really looked like he had redeemed himself until the man went to trial and it, it was discovered that some of the methods that Patsy used to capture the monster of Florence were unethical and, and possibly pinned it on the wrong man. So he is still trying to redeem himself in this story here and he has come across a man that he has begun to suspect is Hannibal Lecter. The scar is really what tips him off. And he's being fed information, not just by, you know, the FBI most wanted list, but there is a, another gentleman, a former victim of Hannibal Lecter that is putting out wanted notices and big, huge ransoms for the discovery and capture of Hannibal Lecter. So Ronaldo is working on the principle that he can make a lot of money and redeem his name if he can prove that Dr. Fell, this art librarian curator, is actually the on-the-loose Hannibal Lecter. And he's got a beautiful wife, by the way, that's making it necessary for him to get more money. She's too beautiful for him, and he's having a hard time keeping her. And Lecter eventually meets her and is attracted as well. I mean, isn't that enough for a story? I feel like, wow, Lecter in Italy, a on-the-loose real serial killer that Lecter probably could know or catch. It's not him. The monster of Florence is not him. And a cop who has to decide whether he wants to go for the money and sell out Lecter or use Lecter's intellect to catch the monster of Florence. This is a great third chapter of the story, and I think it might have been 
what Thomas Harris was going to focus on and write. It's clearly the most well-researched. It's clearly the best written and thought out. But let's face it, that isn't what was promised to us. After Silence of the Lambs, partially the book, but definitely the movie, we will accept no story that doesn't bring back Clary Starling and reunites them with, with Hannibal. It just would be dissatisfying. We'd think of it as wasting time. And so it's reduced to one-fifth of a very, very big, large, sprawling novel that I'll just go ahead and say it, does not fulfill on the promises and the high expectations we have for it. It's disappointing that Harris's ambition gets away from him, and the expectations that clearly must have been laid on him are just too much for him to deliver on. And so, as it were, Hannibal eventually catches wind that he's being trapped by Potsy and ends up killing him in a very theatrical fashion, much like his ancestors were for their assassination plot. It's a bit of poetic justice, and we know that Lecter likes his history and his poetry, and it gets the plot rolling, really. It's the impetus to get Clary's deeply involved. Now, Clarice, we've already been introduced to her. She's uh, been in the first hundred pages before Dr. Fell Lecter has appeared. And it's definitely a kind of sad story here, because although she showed a lot of promise and became an FBI agent, not a whole lot has gone right for her since, you know. We get the sense that the FBI has let her down, that she has turned to it like a father figure, and it is disappointing her that Crawford, her her mentor, is retiring, and they still are friendly, but no relationship there beyond uh, a paternal one. And she, in the opening of the novel, participates in a sting in which she is the head, and things get bloody, agents are killed, and their target is killed with a baby in her arms, and the Tatler, Thomas Harris's favorite villain, really the reoccurring enemy in all his stories, is the tabloid journal, the same one that Freddie Lowndes worked for, the same one that released her audio recordings of her conversations with Lecter. They published photos of her pistol packing and gunning down a drug runner uh, with a baby in her arms. And this has scandalized Clarice. And really, the FBI does very little to exonerate her and clear her name, that she takes the fall, basically. And what we have is a very jilted, disappointed, disillusioned Clarice at the start of this novel. And it's, I think, important that we understand that she's so depressed because she's going to be asked to really do something nearly impossible to conceive by the end of this story. I've got to say, as much as I've wanted to see Clarice reunite with Lecter, and as much as I understood that there was a chemistry there, that there was an attraction, definitely on Lecter's part, and possibly on hers, because she does have a daddy complex, I honestly can say I never wanted to see a coupling between Clarice and Hannibal. But really, the story does go there. It takes a turn there. And what we're really asked to expect and wonder is maybe the reason why Clarice has not found another partner. She didn't hook up with Jack Crawford. And she, although she's still living with Ardelia, of all things, her roomie from the FBI trainee days, and it's theorized maybe they have a lesbian relationship, but that's never explicitly stated. Really, it's just like she's waiting. You know, she's been waiting for Lecter to return. No one in her life has counted as much as Lecter. The bug guy that was in her bed, Dr. Pilcher, has gone, and 
and Lecter writes her eventually. The scandal created by her bad drug raid actually initiates a letter from him that he gets to her through means that they can't quite track and really expresses condolences and taunts her about her daddy issues, calls her out on the fact that she has tried to use her job as a means of fulfilling herself and knowing that it has not been successful. And it is not said it this way, but I'm wondering if Lecter can empathize as well because disappointment hangs in his life as well. You know, he spent all of that time dreaming of being in another place, being in Florence, and once he's there, all he can really do is pine for her. You know, it, this is a love story. This is Romeo and Juliet, believe it or not. And that's weird. I gotta say, it's weird. And that's not the only thing weird about this novel. But it's more than I expected out of a reunion between Clarice and Hannibal. It takes a turn that is quite fantastical in a book series that up to this point had a lot of credibility, had a lot of insight. I felt like its psychological analysis of its characters was on point. And now I'm feeling like this is a fantasy or a cross between a romance novel and a really wacky lurid fanboy site where they extrapolate all the most grotesque ways to kill. Because really, the rest of this novel is way over the top, more so than I've seen in any of the sort of details of the last two novels. This one is bug nuts the most. I mean, it's really hard to believe that it's the same author, frankly. It's hard to believe the same author that crafted Red Dragon and Silence of the Lambs really went here with the rest of this novel. It had been said in one of the previous books, I can't remember which one, that there were two survivors of Lecter. Through all of his nine attacks, there were two people that actually lived, one of which went insane and was institutionalized, and one of which was on the respirator. Well, by the time that this novel is occurring, and I think the the year is 1990, the first George Bush is president, and given the time frame of how things have happened, yeah, I think we're dealing with 1990-91. There's only one left. And we get to meet the guy that's on a ventilator. His name is Mason Verger. He is the heir of a, a livestock production family business. He's so wealthy, basically. It's allowed him to stay out of jail and indulge in some pretty perverted habits. He has been a pedophile who, basically, his father opened up a summer Christian camp for low-income families that became a breeding ground, really, for what children Mason would target and exploit sexually, and is still doing to this day. They are still having lower-income families come and stay on his giant estate, and even though it's not clear that Mason has all his parts still, we do know that his sexual organs are still working. It's not entirely clear what he does, and frankly, I don't need to know more than that. It's pretty sordid. It's pretty dark. Mason has burning in his heart revenge. He has a crazy revenge plot cooked up. Not only does he want to find Hannibal Lecter, and yes, his reward is the one that fueled Potsy to go after Lecter, but he has actually bred a livestock, pigs. He has bred a strain of pig that is so voracious, it actually will attack human beings and eat their flesh. And this is poetic justice to him. He was Lecter's patient because he was court-appointed to him after the pedophile accusations were lobbied at him. He had to see a shrink, and Lecter drugged him and forced him in a drug state to 
carve off his face and feed it to dogs. This is where I'm talking about where things don't feel logical. I mean, there has always been a ghastly, very dark presence in in all of these novels. And all the killers have a really, really sordid dark side. You know, Dollarhide and Buffalo Bill, James Gum, both really had some very twisted sick shit going on in their head. Mason is really in line with that. I feel like he fits with that. But unlike the other two, where we really get into their backstory and really have a understanding of how someone like this could come to exist, this character feels entirely fabricated. It's hard to imagine a reality to this character. It's hard to imagine that a pedophile, no matter how wealthy, could be controlling the FBI and buying his way into influence. And once the Potsy thing goes south, he eventually decides the best way to get Lecter is to use Clarice's bait. And so he bribes Clarice's boss at the FBI, Paul Crindler, to ruin her career even further and to make her public shaming such that Lecter will be forced to come back to America and, well, rescue her or at least confront her. That's the thinnest of plans, but that is all that they have to do at this point to find him because their lead is gone. Dr. Fell has flown the coop. That would seem sordid enough, and I kind of enjoy it as a pulp story. I feel like, all right, well, this is not of the same caliber as what I had read before, but I could enjoy watching Lecter be the hunted now. There's a nice irony to that. But there's even weirder and more offensive twists that come in here. We'll learn that Mason has a sister, Margot, who is a bodybuilding lesbian. Her abusive steroids have made her infertile, so she and her partner are trying to concoct a way to get Mason's seed. And where that storyline goes, I don't believe it's in the movie. They were right to cut it. It is incredibly ridiculous. Offensive is really the right word. It insults the intelligence that they would even go there. But that she basically, of all things, hooks up with Barney. Remember the nurse that took care of Barney? Barney had come to Mason with information about the exchanges that happened between Clarice and Hannibal. I don't know why they need Barney if these things were audio recorded. Mason would have heard the audio tapes. He would not need to know what Barney's opinion of their relationship was. But he's there to consult on the relationship between Lecter and Clarice seven years ago as he viewed it in their week-long dialogue. And in so doing becomes the workout buddy of Margot. He develops an attraction for her. They start showering together, and he's aroused. And will he help them with their plan to get the seed from Mason? This all goes nowhere because eventually Barney is dismissed, and Margot has to go forward with her plot alone, and she decides to use a electric kettle prod to stimulate Mason and get her inheritance, I'll just call it, (laughs) get her vial of specimen that she can then use to inseminate her partner. Terrible, right? Just terrible. I hated that part. And that's not the only part that's not working. I've got to say, once Lecter heads back to America, I just feel like there's 200 pages to go, and I'm almost hating every page of it. I feel like it's horrible what happens to the story, and it feels like, honestly, someone that ran out of time. As much time as Thomas Harris had to craft this story. It really felt like up to this point he had drafted some interesting characters. Some felt realistic, some not. Some stuff like Florence felt very real 
and researched, and after that point, it reads like crazy fan fiction, like stuff that I'm out of my book advance, and I only have a week before I have to pay it back because that was the contract I signed. So let's just get this out there. It feels careless, haphazard, poor writing as just storytelling. It feels clumsy and awful. There's all of this garbage about Lecter coming back and a hunter during deer season that he targets with arrows. It just tangents that go absolutely nowhere. And you really feel like he's lost the focus of whatever he was trying to do and trying to tackle so much. And really, the mistake seems to be in trying to get Clarice back into it while doing all of these other things. It's shocking and real disappointing. I'll be curious to revisit the movie Hannibal. I remember being disappointed with it as well, but not as much as I am with this book. I feel like this book truly is a betrayal of the characters. I very clearly understand why Jonathan Demme, the director, and Jodie Foster did not want to return to tell this in a movie because it's not just a matter of changing a few things. You really would not want to do anything that this story does in its second half. But the thing that keeps us reading and turning the pages and rolling our eyes as all of this useless side stories pile up and there's all of this ridiculous over-the-top carnage is that we still are very curious curious to know, okay, once we get past all of this, what are Clarice and Lecter going to do with each other? What does their relationship mean? If he has become her new father figure and that she has been disappointed by everyone else, what is she willing to do for him now that he's come back to rescue her? And more centrally, what is going on in Lecter's mind? Does he want to eat her? Does he want to marry her, you know, have kids together. Is he conventional in that way? Are we seeing the softer side? It had been implied in Silence of the Lambs that he finally had the ability to project an empathy with women, whereas they had just been objectified things to devour to him up until that point, that he could see one as an equal. Has he changed? Has he softened? Has he mellowed in his old age? I mean, we know that he has a little just because of the way that his lifestyle has made him go soft, but I really want to know what they could do here. And Clarice tracks him. You know, there's a lot of time spent on the quote-unquote memory palace of his mind. All the things that are going on in Lecter's mind are projected like a building, and that in order for Clarice to catch him and penetrate his mind and find out his thoughts, to know him, to be the Will Graham to catch him again, if you were, she is going to have to emulate him. And for years, she has been forsaking her quote-unquote white trash roots and reading couture magazines and caring about fashion and fine dining and all of these things. She's immersed herself in the things that he loves. She's telling herself as a way of getting closer to him to bring him to justice but she describes it at some point as, as indulging it like pornography. So we get the sense that, yeah, the attraction is sexual and mutual on both of their parts. And that is how Thomas Harris concludes the story. It's a stunner, and not in a good way, but Thomas Harris, I guess, deserves some credit for going there. After all, the nonsense with Mason doesn't really pay out. Nobody gets eaten by pigs, although she does get him, and he is you know, going to start with a feed and drag it out to a painful rate, but that really doesn't happen, and it's actually Margot, the bodybuilding 
sister that was also abused by Mason to get the revenge that neither Hannibal nor Clarice brings Mason to justice. It's for Margot to shove his pet eel down his throat. I guess that's some kind of phallic justice. It's hard to know. It's so poor, some of this writing, some of this feels so clumsy that, again, I struggle to believe that the same great mind that has reported on true crimes would then make such trashy exploitation. But be as it may, that story wraps up and Clarice is in the clutches of Lecter. She awakens in a drug state after sustaining some injuries and they have a dinner date. And Lecter gets to show off his ability for cooking an exquisite meal out of the brains of Paul Krendler, the man that had been oppressing Clarice at work. And, you know, unlike in the movie where Clarice stays loyal to the force and rejects the dinner menu, here Clarice is happy to swallow the brains and wash it down with some sorbet. She has reached an agreement that she is ready to leave it all behind, including everything we loved about her, <laughs> all gone so that they could run away to Buenos Aires, and that the end of the story ends up with them attending opera and tangoing and being a true romantic couple. I don't know whether Lecter is still killing people and they eat the brains. I don't know if she's gone cannibal or he's gone soft. But they are an item, and that actually Barney, uh, the nurse who has also been taught about culture in his time around Lecter and is traveling the world seeing all the Vermeer paintings, actually has come to Buenos Aires to see the Vermeer there at the local museum, accidentally runs into them at the museum and decides to keep it to himself that <laughs> as even though he's exploited and and used all of the things that Lecter had from his jail cell to make money and to make his fortune he is going to let this couple have their happy ending and presumably we're supposed to want that too wow did anybody want that did anybody check with you know the reader I, I thomas harris i i feel like you you misunderstood what we loved about clarice and lecter if you thought that we ever wanted to see them become a couple we loved the attraction we loved the striptease we loved so much about their chemistry but it was far more complicated than it becoming this very trashy romance in which logic and responsibility and previous character description is thrown out for a very sordid juvenile ending. It's a real shame and impossible to fix here. This is just not the story that we would want. It's not where we would want it to go. It's a true disappointment. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I feel like even though the book's prints initially were tremendous, there has not been any follow-up and nor has there even really been any asking, as far as I know, about what Clarice and Hannibal are doing now. I think people choose to pretend like that never happened or is some indulgent fan that someone wrote on a website that isn't the truth. We'd like to keep these characters to ourselves. Thank you very much. I'm going to remember them as they were in Silence of the Lambs and have my own thoughts about where they could go. It's much better that way. It's mentioned that it, as we explore a little bit of his memory palace, that Lecter had a pivotal relationship in his life, Misha, a sister that serves in much the same function as Clarice's father does to her. It's a guiding force and important, but we don't get a whole lot of that. And so we have one more novel 
in which we are going to learn about Lecter and Misha and how he came to be the character incarcerated, flesh-eating, madman genius that we grew to love, and then not. <laughs> We're going to learn about him in the last novel, Hannibal Rising. That's going to be in two weeks because we're tying this with our sister podcast, NowPlayingPodcast.com. Next week, they're covering over there Red Dragon. Got to go back. You can listen to my podcast again. I've already done Red Dragon. I don't see a point in doing it one more time. But it might be interesting to re-listen to it and then compare with how a second version of the novel would be in film. But in two weeks... We'll get to Hannibal Rising, both the movie and over here at Books and Nachos, the last Thomas Harris published novel about Hannibal Lecter. Until then, keep reading. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is copyright 2011, Venganza Media Incorporated, all rights reserved.